This Week at Hope Point. If the world sees the church not repenting, then do you think the world's going to be inclined to repent? So God has to be severe because if God were not severe with passages like this, we probably wouldn't leave our sin. And then we would confuse the world by sending this mixed message that sin's not a big deal. The book of Revelation does reveal how God will bring history to a close. But more importantly, it was written so that Christians would recognize the unique strategies that Satan uses in order to persuade the church to abandon Christ during times of trial and to live for the acceptance of the world. One of the most common strategies employed by our adversary is through false teaching that dilutes and distorts the truth of the Bible. To every church that holds on to Scripture, Jesus says, Well done, enjoy the endless rewards of heaven. But to those churches that compromise truth to accommodate culture, Jesus warns of severe consequences. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 2. On June 19th, 1953, a little after eight o'clock at night, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were put to death in the electric chair for selling top secret military uh, information to the Soviet Union. The Soviets had, had figured out something very interesting. They could not defeat the United States externally. So they said, maybe we can defeat them internally. So they found people that they could buy. It was interesting, when you look at the Rosenbergs, they looked like anybody that was living in the 50s. It looked like they loved this country and they looked like they were citizens of America. But when the price was right, they showed that their loyalty to was to another country. This is basically how Satan often brings down a church or brings down an individual, especially with the church. He'll send in somebody false that looks like a believer or looks like a pastor and uses them to persuade people to actually abandon their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, the church is safe as long as Satan is attacking from the outside, but when he gets on the inside, the church is, the church is in danger. You know, if we conducted a survey today, if you're new here, we're in the book of Revelation, not too far in it. If somebody were to ask you, or just ask, if I were to ask you, what do you think the book is about? A lot of people say, well, it's just about the end times, how everything, history closes. And that is true. It's a beautiful close of history. But really, the book was written to teach believers what to look for along the way, the temptations and trials that Satan will use to bring them down so they will loosen their devotion to Christ before we get to the end. That he gets people, in other words, he gets people out of the race. So that's why the book was really written. So that you'll understand and be able to look for and sense, oh, this is something that might stop my race. So today we're looking at church number four and city number four in our study. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith. Nevertheless, I have this against you. This is the inside job here. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality. If you um, have been keeping track, this is our fourth city, and this is the area of the world where these cities and these churches were located right smack in the middle of the map, about far west as Asia as you can go. That's why in its day it was called Asia Minor, uh, Little Asia it's to the west, and today it's the, it's the country of Turkey. And I just put these four cities on the map that we've already studied, or the fourth one today, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, 
Thyatira, just so you could get a feel. We're talking about real people, real churches that lived a, a, in a real time, a really hard time. So you can see Istanbul at the top. I just put that on there so you can sort of get a feel. Where in the world are we when we talk about the seven churches of, of Revelation? So we're talking today about the, the city of, or the church that existed in the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was an interesting, it's not really like the other cities so far. It wasn't really a bigwig city politically, like no major decisions were made there, no, 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 no big political uh, people came out of there. It was just hard working, manufacturing people, city. Um, it's like if you go today to Elkhart, Indiana, they manu they have, they're manufacturing 546% more manufacturing jobs per capita than anywhere else in the United States. That's what those people do in Elkhart. They produce things, and what they produce is, is mainly motorhomes. 52% of all the motorhomes in the United States are in Elkhart. It was a commercial, it is a commercial city, a manufacturing city. And that's what Thyatira was like. Um, they produced... Uh, bronze and burnished bronze. They produce leather made for different kinds of tents. And they produce all sorts of um, exotic fabrics and beautiful dyes. But if, if, if you were looking for a manufacturing hub in the first century, you would go to Thyatira. And the cool thing about it is you know somebody from there. You may not know it now, but when the Apostle Paul was preaching in um, his second missionary journey, he came to a city in northern Greece called Philippi. And there were some women that were, came to hear him teach. In the morning, they were gathered by the river. And this is what his companion, who later wrote about the event that day, said in Acts 16. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. So she was a businesswoman there, but she had business this week in, in Philippi. She was a dealer in purple cloth, and the Lord opened her heart. She and the members of her household were, were baptized. Um, Lydia from Thyatira would probably have never found the Lord had she not had that business trip to Philippi because in Thyatira, the only thing the business people did was worship a god named Apollo. The interesting thing about the manufacturing um, center in, in this city was it was made up of a bunch of trade unions. And that day they were called guilds. And in order to be a part of a guild, not only did you have to have a skill, but when you joined the guild, you had to profess allegiance that you would worship no one but Apollo, who in the Roman world was the god of the sun that God produced, the god who produced energy. So... Everybody that wanted to get in a guild had to declare their allegiance to Apollo. So there's no way in, a, in Thyatira, Lydia would have ever heard of Jesus Christ. All she would have heard was the sun god, Apollo. It was a very difficult place to work in if you were a believer because the main purpose of every company party was to worship Apollo. So... This is why Jesus sort of introduces himself to the city, to the church there. He said, to the angel of the church there in Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So when he declares himself to be the Son of God, he's saying, hey, this Apollo that you've been worshiping, nope, 
not a God at all. You got some fake news. There is no such thing as another God. I am the only son of God. There's only been one time in life where God entered into the womb of a woman, mixing the DNA of deity with the DNA of humanity, and only one time was the Son of God ever born on this earth. And so there is no such thing as the Son God. There is such thing as the Son of God, and I am He. So he's trying to give the church confidence. There is no other, other God. Then he talks about uh, feet of burnished bronze. Why would he say that? Well, because you know in the, uh, in the, the bronze um, the Bronze Age, when um, mankind learned to mix tin and copper together under great heat, mix it together, and it would form bronze when bronze was discovered. And therefore, out of bronze, people begin to make things like swords and, and lots of tools and factories and all that. Bronze was just an incredible discovery. Well, the city of Thyatira had taken that to a new level. They made what was called burnished bronze. It was radiant, stunning shiny bronze. Nobody knew how to do it except the trade unions in Thyatira. And Jesus comes and says to them, you've never seen bronze shine. You've never seen metal glow like you will when you see my feet marching throughout the earth at the end of history as I conquer all the enemies of righteousness. My feet will be filled with radiant glory, kingdom-conquering glory that rivals anything that Thyatira has ever produced. And then he also says that his eyes are like blazing fire. Again, another reference to just the fires that would have been burning all the time in Thyatira from the metal workers, so intense to get the metal right. And Jesus says, my eyes are like all the fires of history at one time coming through my stare, that there is no real darkness in the world that I don't see it as broad daylight. Everything that's done, been done wrong and hidden in the world, Jesus said, I saw it. And also everything that's been done right, I saw it. I see everything. So let's look at something that the church was doing right that Jesus had seen. I know your deeds your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So this is pretty cool. This is a growing church. They've added more services, more seats. They had all sorts of cool programs. They, they, were in, they had a bunch of community groups. They loved each other. They, they, if you ask them, what do you believe in? They would have said Jesus. And they, their service to one another, they... It through perseverance, that is, they made great sacrifices to serve each other. This was the kind of church that you say, hey, where's the big conference going to be held this year? Oh, it's going to be held at Thyatira. It was that kind of church. But what we discover is that Jesus, the reason that he rebukes it, it's a very interesting thing how strongly he rebukes this church. This is the longest letter of any of the seven churches. And he writes the longest letter to the busiest church because this church had learned that it's easy to cover up disobedience with busyness and it's, that's exactly what there happened a lot of times you know we'll do a lot of things in order to avoid doing the one thing that God's really asking us to do and this church demonstrates that 
If we focus on meeting needs more than pursuing holiness, we open the door to moral impurity. And I'm sorry, I, I get that whole little quote right there from this verse that I just skipped over. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet by teaching, uh, by her teaching, she misleads many servants into sexual immorality. So, you know, what she had done is she had basically convinced people to say that sin is not as sinful because of all the good things that the church was doing. Sin is less sinful because of all the good that you're doing. So let's find out a little bit more about Jezebel. She was, um, she was married in the Old Testament. That's where we get her name. That's not her real name in the New Testament. But Jesus wanted to try to mention the name of the woman who was teaching there in Thyatira. So he picked out the most wicked name of the Old Testament. And she was entirely wicked there was a king that ruled over Israel. His name was Ahab, but he was not in charge of the country. He was, he was president of Israel, but he wasn't calling the shots. It was a woman named Jezebel married to him. She was a worshiper of, of false gods, the god of Baal, who was responsible for fertility, and the god who was the, the god of bless the crops. Her desire was to bring the god of Baal into God's people, into Israel. So she marries the king in order to get her foot in the door. The first thing she does in 1 Kings 18.4 is she kills all the preachers that she can find in Israel. And once they're dead, then she replaces them with false prophets that she was bringing from her own place. I don't know how big the palace was, but the Bible says that at one time she entertained, fed 850 false, false prophets. So when Jesus comes to Thyatira, he's got to pick a name. He's got to pick a name, one name that would fully describe the powerful influence of this wicked teacher that had secretly come into the church, and he just picks the name Jezebel because everybody would understand. It's not like if you went to Thyatira Elementary School, you would never find a little girl named Jezebel. It was exactly the opposite. If you wanted to come up with a name for a wicked person, you would, use, you would use Jezebel. And her hatred of righteousness was so powerful that she's identified with those who attempt to divide churches, bring impurity in the lives of believers. She wasn't like a nice woman that had gone astray, like accidentally got hold of some bad information. and was. She was intentional, deliberate, strategically trying to bring this church down to silence it. Very powerful. You know, Adolf Hitler could not have done anything that he did in Nazi Germany in World War II had he not had the, um, had he not been able to get the churches to participate and to be silent as he moved across, as he moved across Europe, and they certainly were silent. That's what she was doing. She was trying to silence the church in Thyatira. It says that by her teaching, she misleads many into sexual immorality. This is not very difficult to understand why she, how this works. Remember, you're, you have this trade. You belong to this union. So you go to this festival. So this festival, the purpose of it was to honor the false god of Apollo. 
In order to do that, you would sit down at a table and everything that was served to you at that table would have been blessed by this God, Apollo. And then after dinner at that temple where Apollo was worshipped, there would be all sorts of acts of immorality. And if you said no to any of that, people would say, what is wrong with you? You'd say, well, I don't worship Apollo, then you'd lose your job. So Jezebel comes in and she tells the church, that's way too strict. That's fanatical. You can go to those festivals. God would never want you to lose your job for taking a stand against the stands of culture. And so she was teaching this. She was teaching the church to, that unholiness would be okay if it would help you keep your job. Now, how, how, did, how, did, how did she do that? How did she persuade people to, that she knew what she was talking about? Verse 24 pretty much tells us, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Secrets is the, the operative word here. This is how, this is how um, false teachers work. They come into a church or they come into a culture and they say, I have special knowledge of things. Almost you'd say it like this. A, a false teacher implies this. For all the preachers like me and missionaries, evangelists, church planters who've been going throughout the world and studying the word of God for 21 centuries, they have missed it. And I understand what the Bible really says. And it's all new stuff. Like they might say, well, gosh, you know, you, you go to Hope Point, that's no way that that stuff is right because, I mean, Richard, like, my goodness, he shows maps on Sunday morning. That's, that's way too hard on the brain. If you go to church, it should be easier to understand. All this deep teaching is going to drag people down because Christianity is about the heart, about how you feel, not about your mind. That's how false teachers work. They just say, just come in and I'll teach such light stuff. And then, and then the false teachers would say things like, all of this call to holiness, that's way too restrictive. You need to loosen up a bit. And they say, I have learned new things and the church has gotten it wrong for 21 centuries. My, my preaching professor used to tell our class this, guys, I want you to study hard. But if you, in your study, you feel like you have discovered something that Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli missed, run. <laughs> so really, there's, there's nothing that I'm going to discover this week that's new. I'm just reminding you of old, precious truths. But a false teacher says, I've got new things for you that will liberate you from the kind of life that the church is inflicting upon you. You can believe what you want to believe. You can behave how you want to behave because... There's new teaching on, on that. How does Jesus feel when he sees a false teacher hurting the purity of a church inside? He's pretty angry. He says this in Revelation 2.21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children or her followers dead then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to, to your deeds. So that's a picture of divine wrath. That's where Jesus the Savior becomes Jesus the judge. The anger of Jesus is as real as the love of Jesus. 
It's just not taught much any, anymore. I don't know if you're going to judge me for this or not, but I really just like the Mission Impossible series. I just like them. I like Ethan Hunt. I think he's a cool spy. But I remember there was a time, one of the episodes, when he was sitting in front of a glass window eating with a, a co-worker in Prague. And the co-worker, he just found out, had backstabbed him. And he tells Ethan Hunt, he said, hey, I think you might be getting upset. And Ethan says, you've never seen me upset. This is Jesus to many, many people. They've never seen this aspect of Jesus because here he's pretty upset about what's happening to his church and the churches allowing it. The picture of Jesus represented in the New Testament is a Messiah who offers mercy to the repentant and judgment to the unrepentant. Um, you know, it's amazing why Jesus would be angry here. He left heaven, said goodbye to the Father, yeah. took on a human body, died on a cross. Roman soldiers beat him unmercifully so that our sins could be absorbed into his body. And here, the false teachers in Thyatira were giving permission for individual Christians to live in the very sins for which Jesus had given his life for. So you don't need to feel bad about that. So you can tell why he's, why he's mad. The reason why people reject God, ultimately, is because he will not wink at sin. And they want him to. The world will tolerate a Jesus who uh, feeds the poor and uh, teaches about love. But they reject a Jesus who demands repentance and warns of judgment. The message of the world to Jesus stay in your lane bro the message of Jesus to the world is and I'm in everybody's lane this is what we see of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 now if you were to ask me again is Jesus Christ do, Richard do you say is he a merciful God extraordinarily merciful look I have given her what time to repent I mean he comes to her and then then um, look in the end of verse 22. I'm going to judge them intensely unless they repent of her ways. So there's two offers here to repent. But this is like mercy of why you're at church today. God has brought you here so you could hear this. He's like you're alive so you have time to repent. My whole life, I am alive here at 61 years of age because... God over and over and over again gave me time to repent. I have a friend here this morning who called me this week and said, I'm coming to your church. We just recently moved to the area and it's great. I mean, she's a friend of Lisa's and mine and she knew what I was like in high school. So I have nothing to hide. My life's had many, 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 many times of sin. But Jesus says, hey, each time he comes to me through a, a good brother or a, a, a sermon or a song or just some prophet and says, you need to repent of that. And by his grace, he keeps me, he keeps me repenting. But as you can see here in verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent. 
and um, she's unwilling, so I've, I cast her on a bed of suffering. Thomas Watson says, God is the best friend or the worst enemy. So exactly how this judgment played out in Thyatira, I don't know. I know it was a literal judgment. There's, because God does this in the scripture. We saw him last week in Numbers 24 with the prophets of Baal. He, he does that. He did that in the church of Corinth. They were observing the Lord's Supper. And people were taking and eating, drinking of the juice, eating of the bread without repenting of their sins, with no intention to repent of their sins. And he said, some of you have died because you are mocking the Lord's Supper. And then Acts chapter 5 was very interesting where you know that he got the attention of a lot of people. A man came before the church and told a huge lie that everybody knew he was lying. And God took his life. His name was Ananias. And then a few hours later, his wife came in and Again, they're giving her an opportunity. Is this true or are you ready to tell the truth? And she told the same lie. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 5. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men who came in, they, they found her dead. They carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And I can say, I imagine so. Great fear. And, and this is why God does things like this. So that the world will know, the church will know, I am a God who searches the heart. But if the, but if the, if, but if the church, if the world sees, if the world sees the church not repenting, then do you think the world's going to be inclined to repent? So God has to be severe because if God were not severe with passages like this, we probably wouldn't leave our sin. And then we would confuse the world by sending this mixed message that sin's not a big deal. You know, Gandhi, who led so often for, for, for decades in India, he read Christian books all the time. He had conversations with Christian teachers all the time. And he said he was very interested in Christianity and Later in his life, he said, I would probably be a Christian if it were not for Christians. <laughs> so that's why Jesus was severe at Thyatira, to protect the honor of, of Christ, to say that God doesn't wink at sin. You know, it's interesting, you see, do you know what? God does not wink at sin. Do you know what God does? Instead of winking at sin, he dies for it. He sheds his blood for it. And then he comes to the church and says, honor my son for the blood that was shed for you. He, but the, uh, the thing he doesn't do is just wink at it. Now, as we've seen with every one of these churches, they all end with ultra-cool, hope-saturated promises. And so that momentum begins to turn in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
I love that phrase, to the rest in Thyatira. Do you know what the rest means? That means that there were some people that had not folded yet to cultural pressures. So to the rest in the church who had not yet caved and bowed down, I'm not imposing really anything on you other than you got to get rid of Jezebel. Don't embrace it. Don't allow it. Don't tolerate. That can't be. That's all I'm asking you to do. No other burden. So just hold on until I come. Like, just hold on to the cross. Just hold on to the preciousness of Jesus until I come. Just hold on. No other burden. I mean, it's like, it's not like he's asking the church to be superstars. Just get rid of Jezebel. Like when something is blatantly wrong, just stop it. Don't justify it. I mean, I love when he says, I will impose no other, other burden on you. I mean, do you know that Jesus Christ, I could wake up this morning and could be met by Jesus who said, you failed, then tomorrow, you failed, then the next day, you failed, next day, you failed. He could do that, but he doesn't. All he says is, hey, Rich, I'm just asking, this one area of your life where you're compromising, just clean it up. He's like, he's not, that's, do you know what a superstar Christian is right there? Somebody who holds on. Lisa and I, we, we laugh. We call ourselves the Normaltons, Richard and Lisa Normalton. Because we, I always say this when I'm doing premarital counseling. I've got nothing to share with you. We just, we're just really two sinners that Jesus has taught us how to love each other. But we're just normal. My parents were normal. They weren't spectacular, just normal. They just held on to Jesus for as long as I, I knew him. So no other burden, just hold on to the cross. Just hold on to the cross. Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. He's the one that you know, said goodbye to the Father. He's the Savior. Of the world. He's not asking you to be the Savior of the world. Just hold on to the Savior. Verse 25 or 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that person will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that person authority as well. I will also give that person the morning star. Another mystery verse. So what's the morning star? Well, we'll take a guess. There is a passage in the Old Testament where the Bible says that out of Israel will come the morning star, and it's identified in Numbers 24 as a person. It's the only time that phrase is used in the Old Testament. And then Jesus says here in Revelation 2, I'm going to give you the morning star. You'll say, well, what person is that? Jesus finally tells us at the end of the book that he himself is the morning star. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I, Jesus, am the bright and morning star. So as we've seen with every other promise to every other church, the promise of Jesus when you see him in glory is that he gives you the full revelation of his infinitely beautiful self. I'm going to give you all of me. And you've only just seen tiny bits of me. Like the singing today, like it's, like it's better than ever. It's just a little bit of Jesus. I'm going to give you... like. I'm going to take all the light and the radiance and just flood your body with it in heaven. I'm the morning star and I'm just going to flood you with satisfying 
glory. And here's the second promise. To the one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Now, again, if you're sort of taking notes over the past four weeks, you'll see that Jesus added something to this. Up till now, all he has said to every church is, to the one who overcomes, I will give. But here, he adds something because I think some of you were asking, probably to yourself, what does it mean to overcome? Sort of like mysterious, vague, hippie language, to the one who overcomes. So here he defines it for you. Overcoming means that you don't quit that you keep doing the will of God until you die. So the one who serves Jesus until the end, I will give authority over the nations. That leads to the question, well, what does that mean? Well, we don't have enough time. Matter of fact, I've got one minute and 30 seconds left on that clock. So I'll just tell you this. I wrote some verses at the bottom. You can go back here later this week and look them. Psalm chapter 2 is a beautiful chapter of the Bible where God the Father is talking to God the Son, and he says, I love you, and I'm going to give you all the nations to rule over because you're the Savior of the world. So Jesus has this authority. He rules everywhere because of his obedience to the cross, the resurrection. So we know that he has the authority, and here in Revelation 2.26, Jesus says, the authority that I have to rule over the whole universe, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to share it with you. Because, you know, it's interesting. That's what a bridegroom does when he gets married. All that's his belongs now to his wife. I mean, it's amazing. All that rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ, the King. He says, I'm going to give to you and you and I will rule the world together. Well, how are we going to rule? Well, again, it's a little bit of a mystery. You, you see in Revelation 19, 20, and 22, these are three references in the end of this book of how we'll rule over the nations. Revelation 19 says, when, when those who have died previously, when our loved ones who have died, when they come back, when Jesus comes back, says they will be with him right behind his white horse as he comes to rule the world in his return. Revelation 20 talks about the thousand years in which Jesus Christ, before everything is finished, that we're going to rule over all the, all the cities and all the states and uh, all the provinces, all the nations. Jesus will, and we will be there right with him. And then Revelation chapter 22 talks about a final rule when it says we'll just rule with Jesus when, when heaven comes down to earth and the new earth is created, so we're going to rule forever and ever. You say, well, that's, what does all of that mean? And I really don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you two things about it. One of my favorite preachers, Alexander McLaren, says this, to try to understand everything about our future rule with God is like trying to pry open the petals of a flower before they're ready to open. Like, n not yet. I'm not going to tell you yet what it means to rule. But think about for the believers in Thyatira or our persecuted partners around the world where, where they, knowing Christ means they lose everything. Think about what a promise to those people and what a, hopefully a promise to you as well that you're willing to give up things on this earth because whatever it means, whatever you lose on this earth, whatever way the culture overpowers you or the state may overpower you 
Relationships may overpower you. You're going to rule over all of the universe, all the galaxies with Christ one day. So it's okay whatever we lose now. Uh, So I promised you the end of Revelation. It ends with a promise about ruling. So we'll just read this to close. Oh, let me read this. We'll read a little blip from me first before we get to the good stuff. When the kingdom of God is fully revealed, powerless people will rule with the power of Christ. And here's the criteria for that. If you are ruled by Christ now, you will rule with Christ later. That's how you can sort of know how it's going to turn out for you. And here's the promise at the end of the book. Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Man, that's good stuff, isn't it? That's heaven. No longer will there be any curse, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face. I'm doing a wedding in uh, the beginning of March in Arizona and it's close enough to the Grand Canyon that Lisa and I are going to go see it. How how, I saw it when I was 19. I can't wait to see that beauty of God again. To see the face of the creator of the Grand Canyon. Wow. So they will see his face and they will reign with him forever and ever. I think I want to throw a few more in there. And ever, and ever, and ever. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.